Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to uh, this hybrid public event organised by the Department of Mathematics of the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Jan van den Heugel. I'm the head of the department and it's my great pleasure to introduce the speaker we have tonight with us. Uh, a very well welcome to everybody here in the room and equally warm welcome to everybody who's following us online. So speaker tonight is uh, Professor Lutkat Ferrat. Uh, Lutkat has been with us at the LSE in the department since 2010. Before that, she studied in Ulm, Germany, did a PhD in Cambridge, had positions in uh, Princeton, and Karlsruhe, and like I said, is now a professor in the Department of Mathematics. She also has an affiliation with the Systemic Risk Center here at the LSE. So let me say a few words about Lutkert. You'll get a better impression about what her interests are when you follow her, her presentation. So Lutkert's research is around the mathematics, financial mathematics, in particular on methods and assessment for uh, methods for assessing and managing systemic risks in financial markets. Again, you might have noticed that has a lot to do with the title of the presentation. She's published extensively within that area, but not just academic publications. She's written and developed software, which is freely available as extensions for several software uh, packages. She's also recognized as an expert in the field by the outside, outside academia. Over the years, she had a George Fellowship in the Bank of England, and she continues to collaborate with uh, practitioners in the Bank of England here in London. She's had a research fellowship with the Bank for International Settlement in Basel. So she really is well known. And she's a regular invited speaker to leading conferences both in theoretical financial mathematics and in the more applied world. But she's more than just a, uh, an absolutely outstanding researcher and a communicator about her research. Uh, she's a dedicated teacher, has supervised several PhD students to a very successful completion, has regularly wins, uh, is achieved awards, LSE Excellence in Education Awards, and as her was head of department, I mean, uh, really an overall outstanding college in the department. So it's my great pleasure to hand stage over to Luca uh, for her presentation on systemic risk in interconnected financial markets. Before I go to Luca, yes, please keep your mask on until, uh, if, unless you want to say something, if, uh, please, if you could set your mobile phones to silent, if you haven't not already done that. Feel free to tweet the hashtag LSE for art was there. Uh, just a few things before we get really started. So the event is recorded and we hope and expect to be able to make the recording available in the near future. Uh, after the presentation of Lutka, there will be a chance to answer questions. The people in here, they can do it using the microphone. We'll tell you how to do it once we get this far. 
for the online audience, please, and they're welcome to type their questions during the presentation or after the presentation in the Q&A facilities of Zoom. Uh, if you put a question online, it would be nice to have your name and affiliation included as well. And then once we're done and come to the Q&A, we'll select questions from the audience here and, uh, and the online one. Uh, but I think that's all I needed to say. Okay, um, yeah, thank you very much for the very kind introduction, Jan. Um, it's a pleasure to um, give this presentation here today. Uh, so I will be speaking about systemic risk in interconnected financial markets. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Okay, so um, so what is systemic risk? Um, systemic risk generally is concerned with the risk of the collapse of the entire financial system, or at least a large part of the financial system, with severe knock-on effects on the real economy. Yeah? So this is essentially what I'm trying to study and what I'm going to talk about today. And uh, systemic risk essentially arises uh, from different types of interconnections in financial markets and um, uh, financial institutions are connected via various different channels and I will talk about different channels uh, tonight. Um, so if you want to understand and measure and manage and ultimately mitigate systemic risk, then we really need to understand these interconnections. Okay, and uh, today I would like to show you how you can sort of use mathematical modeling uh, to model and understand these interconnections. Um, so we have two recent crises which really showed the dangers of systemic risk. So the first one was the global financial crisis, which started in 2007. Um, so this financial crisis really was a financial crisis. So the cause, and it started within the financial system. Yeah. Um, so it started essentially in the U.S. housing market with um, subprime mortgage-related losses, and then it uh, sort of got worse and worse within the global banking sector, and then had these real uh, knock-on effects on the real economy worldwide. Yeah. So it was a global financial crisis, and really the financial system was at the heart of this crisis. Um, so the COVID-19 pandemic is another big crisis. We are still in the middle of it. It is a very different type of crisis because it is a public health crisis. This is the cause of it. But obviously it has severe implications for financial markets and also the economy around the world. Yeah? So even though these two crises are very different in terms of what the nature and the cause of these crises were, uh, there are still similarities in terms of they are all um, as bad as they are due to interconnections and amplification effects. Yeah? Um, Lessons have been learned after the global financial crisis, and there have been huge changes in financial regulation to make sure that the financial system today is more resilient than it was uh, essentially 10 years ago. Yeah? And now you can see this COVID-19 pandemic is essentially the first real world uh, stress test of the financial regulation that was put in place in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Yeah? And um, so what you can see, even though obviously we have not seen the end of the pandemic yet, what um, there have been many studies which were trying to understand what would have happened if COVID had um, hit us earlier prior to the financial regulatory reforms and the general sort of understanding is it would have been much worse, Yeah, the outcome to the financial system, the economy, et cetera. So several measures that were put in place after the global 
global financial crisis were now really helping during the global uh, during the COVID pandemic um, that um, the financial system remained um, sort of in a better state than it was uh, during the financial crisis. Okay, but in both uh, both crises, obviously network effects played a major role in, in the COVID. It's, it's very obvious, yeah. If you meet other people, you can spread uh, the virus and so on. So this is a very obvious uh, connection, how it goes, uh, how uh, sort of the pandemic spreads around the, the world. Um, but in this talk, I will focus on the financial connections, yeah. And um, financial markets are highly uh, interconnected nowadays and um, connections can be of both types. They can be very direct. Uh, for example, if you borrow money from someone and you cannot repay this debt at some point, then this might bring other people into trouble. Yeah? So this is sort of a direct relationship, uh, sort of lending between counterparties and so on. So, um, but there are also indirect connections between um, financial institutions or market participants or consumers, etc. For example, think about investors which invest in different assets in financial markets. Yeah? So if you look at two different investors, they might not have a direct trading relationship between the two of them, but since they're investing in similar assets, they might held, uh, have overlapping portfolios, yeah, and so therefore there is a connection between these two investors because they have overlapping positions, yeah. Um, so you see, uh, sometimes it's not immediately obvious whether two uh, participants are connected or not. Sometimes there's a direct contract between them, and sometimes it's going via various uh, rounds, essentially, until you realize these two are actually connected, yeah? Um, so then the question is, what are consequences of connections? First of all, there are all these, uh, the, the risk from feedback effects. So on my first slide, I had this domino, yeah? So the risk is that someone sort of triggers this domino and then it sort of starts falling. Uh, so the initial loss that can sort of run through the financial system and um, can essentially cause huge losses. So these are sort of what we consider the negative uh, feedback effects in the system. And this is obviously what we are mainly concerned about, yeah? This sort of loss cascades in financial systems. But then also, um, I want to point out that connections are not always a bad thing. Yeah, so connections can also lead to some sort of risk sharing and so on. So it's not always the case that removing a particular connection is always better from the risk management perspective. So there are two sides of these feedback effects. And then another important part is um, that there's not just feedback in financial networks, but there are also amplification effects. And this is really a problem. So if you have some connections between market participants, then obviously these connections can spread losses. This is already bad enough, but it could happen that these losses are actually amplified and becoming worse and worse and worse while they are sort of traveling along. Yeah? And then this is a problem. And this is something that was really observed during the global financial crisis. So they started essentially with subprime mortgage related losses in the US housing market. And these losses are usually sort of estimated to be in the hundreds um, of billions US dollar. Yeah? And, um, but then these mortgage-related losses really had severe consequences to the for the global banking system. Yeah, and then we said, uh, we've seen lots of um, uh, trouble within the banks, losses got amplified and then ultimately uh, reached the real economy. Yeah, and then the outcome of, is usually estimated from 
billions of losses in the housing, in the mortgage-related, subprime mortgage-related losses to trillions of losses once you sort of uh, follow it through where it ended up and you had this huge decline in GDP and large unemployment, etc. So this is really this sort of amplification that was observed during the global financial crisis where some initial smaller losses um, were amplified significantly and ultimately were really huge. Yeah, so this is also, this is really also a danger of these connections that they are not just um, there for transmitting losses, but they could also amplify these losses. Okay, so then the question is, um, if we are concerned about these connections and um, the outcome for the financial system, how do we actually assess the resilience of a financial system? And um, a good tool for that, and that is also being used in practice, are stress tests. So what are stress tests? Stress tests are essentially an exercise where you want to um, check how resilient a selection of financial institutions are. So you think about an economic scenario. So you're thinking about um, plausible combination of factors such as unemployment rate, exchange rates, inflation, house prices, etc. So you sort of design an economic scenario, an adverse economic scenario. And then you, you, you ask essentially what would happen to my financial institutions if that was now the economic situation. And um, then you essentially model and uh, get an answer what the outcome of this stress testing exercise would be. The important thing about this scenario is it's not a forecasting exercise. Yeah, you're just looking at a plausible combination. And what you hope is that you hope to find that the institutions are resilient, even under such an adverse economic scenario. But you might find that some cannot uh, sort of survive such a stress event. So these stress tests are really a key tool for financial regulators and um, their use and also their nature has changed significantly since the global financial crisis. So they existed prior to 2007, but since then, um, they have now been used on a regular scale. Um, essentially, all major regulators conduct these re uh, stress tests regularly. For example, in the UK, the Bank of England does an annual stress test of the major banks. Um, so this is now one of the key tools that financial regulators use. And also the way um, the stresses are designed, there's now this move from a micro to a macro prudential approach to stress testing. So what does it mean? This is essentially the lesson learned also from the financial, from the uh, global financial crisis. Um, if you take this microprudential perspective, then you're looking at an individual institution and you ask, what is the outcome of this individual institution in this uh, adverse economic scenario? Yeah, And you look at this on a sort of institution ba uh, basis. But then if you take this macroprudential view, you look at this institution in the context of other institutions and feedback and amplification effects that come from other institutions yeah and um, this is now really an important change and um, what has been going on sort of since the global financial um, uh, crisis and um, so therefore there's really a change in the modeling and I think this is a part where sort of really mathematical modeling can make a major contribution um, to essentially to help to deliver this macro prudential objective of of the modern stress testing yeah and um, so and but then even if you have these new models the question is obviously what kind of scenario do you actually consider yeah and so and here it's important that one also considers new types of scenarios and one important message here I want to give is that you cannot just rely on historical data yeah if you do financial stress testing 
Because as, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic has shown, if you just relied on historical data, you would not have sort of considered a pandemic in, in a stress test or, yeah, at least, I mean, it's not the case that uh, um, regulators never thought about a pandemic, but at least it was not considered on a sort of regular stress testing level. Um, so other examples for new type of scenarios are climate change and potential consequences of climate change yeah, um, for the economy. And um, this is also one of the topics that is sort of feeding into um, new ideas of stress testing. Yeah? And I think this is also an, uh, an area where mathematical modeling can be really helpful um, because you're trying to understand outcomes um, under certain shock scenarios that you have not seen before. So you cannot rely on what you've observed historically. So you need to simulate forward. Yeah, you need some models to understand what might happen. Okay. Okay. Mm, but now the question is, how do we model this kind of macro potential perspective? How can we model loss cascades in financial networks? And here I would like to um, give you an example um, by considering a contagion in networks of payment obligations. Yeah? Um, so here you see a very stylized network. It consists of eight firms. And you see there are weighted directed edges um, between those institutions and the weights mean, um, so for example, from firm one, there is an edge with a weight three to firm two. This means firm one has a payment obligation of three to firm two. Yeah, so this is a network of payment obligations. And now you can ask, suppose these payments are due at some point in time. Um, is everyone actually able to make those payments? Yeah. And what happens if one of them is not able to make these payments? Yeah? And to analyze this kind of behavior, um, one can distinguish between two types of defaults, so-called fundamental defaults and contagious defaults. Fundamental defaults are all those institutions that even under the assumption that everyone pays what they should, cannot pay their debt. Okay, so this is a fundamental problem, fundamental default. Contagious defaults are all those defaults that default at the end of following this uh, loss cascade, but are not fundamental defaults. Yeah, And so these contagious uh, defaults, these are the defaults you find by modeling these loss cascades and modeling contagion in a financial network. And um, so the question is essentially how, what kind of contagion mechanism do you consider here? How do you model it mathematically? And then what is ultimately the outcome in this system? Yeah. Okay, um, I want to start um, with a, um, a very uh, small network example. In the previous example, there were so many financial institutions and very hard to work out in your head of what they might be able to pay or not. So I thought we just look at uh, three firms for now. So this is a very uh, simple financial network. Firm one has a payment obligation of three to firm two. Okay, so this is what this black edge means. And firm two has a payment obligation of two to firm three. Okay, um, so now we can first look at this network and try to understand are there any fundamental defaults in this network? Yeah, so and you see, firm one is lucky because it has access to a bag of money, <laughs> some cash, and I assume there's five pounds there in this bag of money. So firm one has this five pounds in cash and it has to make a payment of three. So that's fine. It can make this payment. So certainly no fundamental default. If you check firm two, in theory, it should get three and it has to pay two. So this is also not a fundamental default. It can make this payment in the perfect world. So then firm three, 
does not have any payment obligations. So firm three can never default no matter what happens. Okay. Um, so you see, this is a situation where actually all payments can be made and there are no defaults. So then the red edges, <laughs> they indicate what the payments are that are actually made at the end of the payment uh, cascade or in equilibrium. And you see these numbers are identical to the payments due. Yeah, so this is the perfect situation. So let's see what happens if we make one change. I make this bag of money smaller. Currently, there's five pounds of cash in it. Now I make it smaller. There's only one pound of cash left in it. So now if you check whether firm one is a fundamental default, you see now, now it is actually a fundamental default. It only has this one pound and it has to pay three. Yeah, And there aren't any changes for firm two and firm three because we haven't made any changes to the edges associated with these nodes. So the only difference is now one fundamental default So of firm one. Let's see what the consequences are of this fundamental default. So firm one only has this one pound in cash. So the maximum it can pay is this one pound that it can pass to firm two. So therefore the red uh, weight now is one. Yeah, this is what it pays to firm two. And now firm two only has one pound and can only make a payment of one pound to firm three. So you see firm two now is actually also now in default because it cannot um, pay its debt in full. And now firm two, this is an example of a contagious default. Yeah, so you see, this is something that could happen once there is a fundamental default in the system, this can have knock on effects. Yeah, and here firm two suffers. The important thing to note here is also I didn't change the actual network structure, the connections between the firms here. I only made the money back smaller. Yeah. So this is important to consider. So the network is obviously a very important input in this analysis, but it's not the only quantity. Yeah. So all the nodes in the system, they are equipped with a balance sheet. They have additional properties. And in my stylized example, they come with a money bag or they come without a money bag. Yeah. And so this is information outside the network that plays a major role on what then actually happens within the network. Okay, so, but this was still a very good situation because the assumption was um, that there weren't any frictions in case of default. So the assumption was if you default, you can just pay what you have and pass it on to your counterparties. So in practice, that's not the case. If you default, there are bankruptcy costs. Also, your money back might actually not be so liquid. Yes, so might you might not be able to actually access it completely. You might only get parts of it or so, yeah? Uh, and so this can be modeled by in introducing um, bankruptcy costs. And now I'm making the assumption in this um, on this slide that every time there's a default, you can only use half of your resources to pay out to your counterparty, yeah? And if you do that, then you see firm one only has this bag of one, but it can only use half of it, or it might only recover half of it to pay out to the other nodes in the system. So it pays one half. And then firm two, again, still suffers a contagious default and now pays even less. It pays one half of one half, one quarter to firm three. So you see, this is now an example where losses are not just transmitted, but amplified. Yeah, Every time you reach someone else who defaults, there is essentially some money going out of the system in this model. Yeah, So this is the amplification of losses. So every time there's a loss, things get worse and worse every time there's a default. Okay. So, but this was still a setting where you could work out in your head <laughs> what everyone pays. So now I want to make it a bit more complicated and look at circular payment obligations. So the picture on the left 
is the same network that we have just considered, but I included one more edge, the edge from firm three to firm one, which has a payment obligation of one. Yeah. And on the left-hand side, I show you the situation without any bankruptcy costs. Now you might ask, what is the effect of adding this one additional edge to the system? It turns out firm one remains a fundamental default. Yeah, it still gets this one now from firm, firm three, but it's not enough to make the full payments of three to firm two. But now the good thing is, since firm two now receives two, firm two is no longer a contagious default. Yeah, um, so firm two is now surviving in this situation. This additional edge was a good thing for firm two, okay? Um, so let's see what happens now if we consider the same network with bankruptcy costs. Now the situation is becoming a bit more complicated and you might not be able to compute this immediately in your head. But the assumption is now you're again just paying out um, half of um, what you have. Yeah? And what you see now, you see all the notes are in red. This means in this situation, actually everyone now defaults. Yeah. If you now you added this additional edge, you have bankruptcy costs, and this is now contagion knocked out everybody. Yeah. Um, so what you see here is um, the the network is the same in both cases, but the contagion mechanism is different. On the left-hand side, we assumed no bankruptcy costs. On the right-hand side, we assumed bankruptcy costs, and the outcome for the system is very different. Okay. Um, so um, in these examples I showed you, this contagion or uh, loss cascade was triggered by the default of a counterparty. Someone was not able to make their payments. They had less um, assets than liabilities. They defaulted and this triggered the contagion. So the question is, does contagion only start by the default from the default of a counterparty or can contagion start earlier? And the answer is contagion can actually start earlier. It can start prior to the default of an institution. And this makes it really very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and um, here I'm citing um, a press release from the Basel Committee on Banking Supervisions, um, which, uh, count, which said that essentially during the global financial crisis, uh, only about one third of the losses attributed to counterparty credit risk were due to actual defaults. Yeah, so um, there was a lot of marking to markets going on um, that uh, essentially made this started this uh, contagion. And uh, this uh, contagion that is tri uh, triggered prior to the default of an institution can also be captured in a network model, similarly to what I've just shown you on the previous slide. Another example um, for a contagion mechanism that starts prior to the default event is fire sales. Yeah? Um, so um, investors, which might get into trouble for whatever reasons, um, they start selling assets. Yeah? And if they sell them in big quantities, there's a decline in prices. And then everyone who is sort of uh, holds these positions is getting into trouble. Yeah? So, and this is also an example. This is this price-mediated contagion uh, that can be triggered much, much earlier than actually at the default event. So you see contagion can spread through financial systems even prior to the default. Okay, and then um, there is another channel of risk in financial markets, and this is associated to liquidity risk. Yeah, and this is also plays a major role when you are looking and trying to understand how resilient financial markets are. Um, 
So this was also already a problem during the global financial crisis, but now during COVID-19, um, one has really also seen again um, the risks that arise from uh, liquidity needs. So in spring 2020, um, when really uh, COVID uh, hit and the lockdown started, and um, then there was sort of huge uh, drops in asset prices, increased market volatility, and, and um, the problems in financial markets then really started. And there was, at this time, there was a huge demand for liquidity. And this started in early, like January, February, um, with a classical flight to safety where investors were trying to invest into safer assets. For example, go into, um, in the UK, into guilds or the treasury, et cetera. Yeah, assets that are considered safe. This is a classical flight to safety movement. But then in March, 2020, there was this switch and the Bank of England called this uh, this flight just from the flight to safety to a dash for cash, where investors really just wanted these ultimately liquid uh, assets or cash, yeah. And so, and this was a, a huge uh, problem then in financial markets, there was a huge demand for cash. And this showed um, then for prices for access to, to liquidity went up, yeah. And this really showed the, the, the problem in financial markets. And there were huge interventions also then by financial regulators to provide liquidity and act as um, yeah, liquidity providers. So what we've also seen during COVID-19 pandemic was these deleveraging effects uh, in financial markets. And um, there were also these large margin calls. And this is now a new effect um, that uh, essentially since the global financial um, crisis, there have been changes in financial regulation, for example, how you trade derivatives. Yeah. So many derivatives now have to be cleared by central counterparties and those that you do not, and, and there's some collateral in place for those, and those that are not cleared by a central counterparties, you still have to post some collateral. So the idea is that you're trying to reduce um, counterparty credit risk by posting uh, collateral for certain positions. And so what is this collateral? You can think in terms of if you, if you buy a house and you have a mortgage, then this house is essentially the collateral. This is protecting the position. So if you cannot repay your debt, then the bank can just keep your house. Yeah, <laughs> And sort of in a, in a similar way, um, positions um, in financial markets are now required to be protected up to a certain level by collateral. And these margin calls, they happen if the financial situation has changed and there's more need now to post additional collateral. And this is what happened now during the COVID pandemic in the spring. Um, market participants were required to post additional um, collateral. And this was these were these margin calls. So they were asked to um, make payments for example, in cash, this is why there was also such a huge demand for cash. Uh, within a very short time frame, this could be within a couple of hours, you have to make these additional payments. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, and so this uh, uh, was one of the causes for this huge demand of liquidity. And um, what one has also seen in this context. Um, that there are different sort of types of financial institutions that played a major role in the provision and also in the supply and demand for liquidity. Yeah, and one could really see that there was a major um, crisis there in the spring of 2020. And you can also use now network models to model this supply of liquidity. Similarly, how you can model sort of contagion um, in, in payment systems. You can also uh, look at the access to short-term funding. What are the effects of these margin calls? Yeah, how much liquidity is needed? How is that spread around the system? 
Okay, um, now I want to show you um, a bit um, how you can sort of mathematically try to work out what an equilibrium in such a sort of a contagion model would be. Yeah? Um, so you have seen we had these um, payment chains initially where you could just you start with your money back and you can just work out step by step who is paying what yeah. Um, but if you have these circular structures and so on, then it's becoming complicated because once you sort of reach the end of your chain, you might be going back and there's suddenly more money coming that you might need to send again through the system and so on. So you some of the question is where does this converge yeah um is there some sort of equilibrium in these uh, systems and if there is one how do you actually compute it yeah um so here i want to give you an example of a network of payment obligations and this it can represent different things it can be the repayment of some debt in an interbank lending network or it could also be this uh, payment of variation margin calls yeah uh, now after uh, that was sort of is now due after the uh, global financial crisis and all the reforms in derivatives markets so here i um i define a function phi and this function now returns the difference between assets and liabilities. So a bit it returns for a given, the input is the net worth of an institution and for a given net worth of an institution, it returns the difference of what you have and what you have to pay. Yeah, so this is what this function phi is trying to model. Phi returns an n-dimensional vector where n is the number of institutions in the system, yeah? And the input E, this stands for equity, it's some type of equity, you can interpret it like this, um, is the net worth of an institution. And you ask, given the net worth of all the institutions in the system, what is your own net worth? Yeah, so this is what phi i returns. So if you look at this formula, you see, um, if you start at the very end, we have li bar, yeah, so this is in my notation, what I needs to pay. So this is the total payment obligations of note I. Okay. Um, and the question is, so this is what it has to pay. The question is, what does I have to make these payments? Um, so at the start, it has this um, BI. <laughs> this stands for back. This is the money back from the example. This is the cash, yeah? BI is the cash that note I has, yeah? So it can use the cash to make the payments li bar, yeah? But in usually it has a bit more, it, it has the cash and it has payments from other institutions, yeah? So by LJI, I denote the nominal payment obligation of node J to node I, yeah? So this is what node J has to pay. Um, the question is, does it actually pay that in equilibrium? And it turns out this will depend now on this orange box. <laughs> this orange, orange box is, contains a function v, and this function v returns a number in 0, 1. Yeah? So if it, this function v returns the number 1, then you're just multiplying the nominal payment obligations by 1. This means lji actually pays what it should yeah, to i. But if this orange box is a value less than one, then there is some loss going on on this edge. And this function V is quantifying this edge, this loss along this edge, okay? And um, so what we're then ultimately trying to compute is we're trying to find a fixed point of this function phi. So this is essentially the equilibrium. 
given everyone's net worth, what is my net worth? Or if you think differently, given what everyone else pays, what can I pay? Somehow you're in a closed system, this needs to match. Yeah, there cannot be magically money coming from wherever. This is within the system. And this is, uh, and this can be captured um, by computing a fixed point here of this function phi. So you're trying to find a vector E star um, that solves E stars equal to phi of E star. So this is the fixed point equation, and this gives you the equilibrium in this network model. Yeah. And um, you can ask, does this um, fixed point exist? This is a valid question, yeah. Um, this will depend uh, very much on this function V here that is modeling the loss along these edges. Um, but there you can come up with many examples where it does exist. And then the next question, for example, would be, um, is it unique? <laughs> it turns out there are many interesting contagion models where the solution is not unique, where you can have several equilibria in this network. So then the question is, which ones are you actually interested in? And it turns out that for many examples, you can provide an ordering result in the sense that there's the greatest and the least fixed point, yeah? And you can use them to, uh, to make your analysis, to do your analysis essentially. And then ultimately you ask, okay, what is then the payment from J to I? The nominal payment is LJI. This is what J should pay to I, but what it does pay to I is LJI multiplied by this orange box, yeah? And in this orange box, this is the function V that contains the fixed point E star, yeah? So this essentially ensures that everything um, adds up in this equilibrium. And this tells you sort of the outcome of this contagion process. Um, so you can now use this function V to model different types of contagion processes. And um, so first of all, um, you see V maps from zero to one. So all the, the Y axis, all the values are from zero to one. And then there's this point one here, which corresponds to the default point. This corresponds to the situation where the assets are equal to the liabilities. And if you have slightly less assets, then you're sort of in default. And then contagion could start in the classical model. The light blue line tells you exactly at this point where assets are slightly less than liabilities contagion starts and you have this linear decline um, and this model corresponds to the Eisenberg and no model which is a famous model for clearing payments in payment systems but what you see if you're in this light blue situation this is the situation without any bankruptcy costs yeah so this is the situation that's why I called it spreading losses it spreads losses but it cannot amplify them so if you have different assumptions on V, for example, the orange line, if you look at the orange one, there's a jump now at the default event. And this jump from an economic point of view, this is modeling the frictions, the bankruptcy costs. So once you're in default, there's some money lost. Yeah. And this mathematically can be quantified with this jump in this valuation function. And then you're going down, it can continue in a, in a linear fashion as well. So this is now the amplification. If you look now at the red line, you see this red curve is leaving the value one even earlier, even, even when you have higher values of assets still, you're not technically in default, but it could be that marking to market effects essentially uh, lead to a decline in asset valuation. And then this red curve is going down 
prior to the actual default event. So this red curve is trying to capture what was observed during the global financial crisis. Yeah, so these mark-to-market effects um, in and and the earlier start of the contagion process. And by the way, you could add a jump in here as well. <laughs> um, yeah, so so the the orange and the red. This is essentially what you've seen now um, in the global financial crisis. Now, what is the blue line? The blue line, I called it collateralization. This is a bit where we are now. <laughs> um, so many financial networks are now collateralized. So first of all, what do you see? This line does not go down to zero. It stops, it has a lower bound that is strictly positive. So this tells you since there's some collateral in place, yeah, losses are not going all the way down. Yeah, So there's some minimum level that is guaranteed. And also what you see, you're staying at this level one for longer, yeah? So, and obviously how long you're staying there and where you end up and so on, this depends on the actual amount of collateral that is being posted, yeah? But you see now, this is essentially what financial regulation is, is changing and how you can sort of see this in a mathematical model and you can try to capture this using different um, sort of forms of this function V, yeah? And depending on how you choose V, uh, you're modeling different types of contagion processes on this different financial networks. So that's why E is not called an equity in that sense. Yeah. Um, okay. So now I've uh, told you that you can use network models, yeah, to um, quantify these contagion effects. And um, now the question is, do you actually observe the underlying network? Yeah. Now you have your uh, fancy mathematical model, um, which has an, as an input the network, you run your contagion process over it, um, you determine what the equilibrium is, uh, whether it's unique and so on, how you compute it and so on, but what if this network is not observable, what can you do? And in practice, this is really a problem. Yeah, uh, Financial regulators might know a lot about institutions within their jurisdiction, but on a sort of wider global scale, um, they might not have this information. So the question is, which information is available and how would you be able to reconstruct a financial network from partial information? So I want to give you one example consisting of two firms. So um, you see a network firm one has a payment obligation of one to firm three and firm uh, two, sorry, and firm two has a payment obligation of three to firm one. Yeah, so this is a very simple network. And we can write this as a matrix where again, um, Lij denotes the liability from I to J. And in this uh, setting, since these are payment obligations, there are zeros on the diagonal. Yeah, so because you don't have payment obligations to yourself. Okay. And then we have the weight of one is here the payment obligation from one to two, and the weight of three is the payment obligation from two to one. Yeah. Uh, so we can write this network as a matrix. So let's compute the row and column sums of this matrix. We can do that. You sum up all the entries in this row. This gives you a one here. You can sum up all the entries in this row. This gives you a three here. And similarly, you can compute the column sums as well. Yeah. So why are we interested in these row and column sums of the matrix? Well, um, because this is information that is very often available. Yeah. So if you sum up the entries in the row, you have the total liabilities of this financial institution. If you sum up the column, you have the total assets of this institution. So, and this is information that is available because they have to publish this information as part of their balance sheet. So at least on a quarterly uh, basis, you know this. So the question is now, suppose you only know the row and column sums. Can you reconstruct the network if I only give you the row and column sums? So in this example, the question is, can you tell me what L12 is and L21 if I give you the row and column sums? And the answer is yes, you will be able to, oops, sorry, 
Um, but there's exactly one matrix that is consistent with the row and column sums. Okay, so that's a simple exercise. What happens if we have a network consisting of three firms? So again, I've just assigned some random numbers here to this network. I compute the row and column sums. And the question is now, can you come up with a solution of what this network looks like if I just give you the row and column sums? And it turns out that in such a situation, you have an infinite number of networks that are consistent with these row and column sums. And so the way to see this is in this second matrix here, you see I've written down the original, the true network, and I've added and subtracted some red numbers. Yeah. So in the first line, I added two here. And now to make sure that I don't violate my row sum, I subtract two here. Okay, so row sum still okay. Now I have to make sure that I'm not violating my column sum. So I add a two here. Okay, now to make sure that I'm not violating my row sum, I subtract the two here. Okay, and so you're sort of moving through this network, doing these cycle moves, and you, you are satisfying the row and column sums. And you cannot just do this with two, but with many other numbers, with an infinite number of numbers. Yeah? So therefore you see an infinite number of networks consistent with these observations. So then the question is, which network should you choose? And um, so here I would say, if you know an infinite number of networks is consistent, maybe don't just choose one. <laughs> um, but here you can take a probabilistic point of view, for example, you can uh, take a Bayesian point of view, yeah, and you can say, well, this unknown network, this matrix is actually random. Uh, and I can try to come up with a probability distribution that is consistent with the observed row and column sums. And there's actually, you can sort of come up with an MCMC, Markov chain, Monte Carlo algorithm to approximate this um, uh, distribution. And then you can estimate quantities of interest, yeah? So then you can do stress testing even under partial information, yeah? And um, I think that's that's a really nice thing. So, so you should not say, I'm not looking at the network because I don't observe it, but then you can use statistical tools. Okay, so to conclude, um, I hope I could uh, sort of illustrate a bit that uh, network models are really powerful tools for assessing systemic risk. You can use them to capture very different types of contagion, yeah, and you can incorporate new features of financial markets that arise from new financial regulation, yeah, for example, um, you see now we have uh, captured different effects when the contagion starts, how it amplifies, how you can sort of mitigate it, etc. You can use also network models to assess um, consequences of policy interventions. Yeah, if you make changes to the market mechanisms, what is the outcome? And you can even use these network models under partial information. And the key application in practice really is, I would say, financial stress testing. So, and I think here you can really use mathematical models to understand how contagion can spread and what is the equilibrium, what is the final outcome. Uh, you can make a sort of rigorous statements of which situations are better than others and so on, and how um, financial regulation changes the behavior. Yeah. So I hope I could give you the sort of uh, mathematical perspective on systemic risk a bit. And this is obviously a very interdisciplinary field. There's many open questions for the students in the room. I think it's an exciting area for further research. And um, there's also a lot uh, going on in other areas, not just in mathematics. And you can see also more, for example, in the Systemic Risk Center at LSE and so on, looking at different types of questions of modeling uh, systemic risk. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you very much. Do I have a question? Okay, sorry.
Please, for you're welcome to take your mask off so we can understand you. you. There is a button on your desk which you should press and hold uh, during uh, when you ask a question. All right. Thanks. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> 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 um, I was just um, mentioned at the end. Okay, if you don't know that structure, you can uh, maybe choose some distribution. Um, would it make sense to try and say something like, oh, you know, uh, for any possible network structure consistent with this information that you know, maybe you would like uh, to be sort of safe in this worst case. Is that something that makes sense? I mean, you, you can sort of make different assumptions on, on the actual network structure and you can include, I mean, the the, the question is, it's not clear what the worst case is in the, in terms of the network. Yeah, it depends very much on the contagion mechanism itself, which network structure would give you the worst case. Yeah, so um, in that sense, I think the advantage of this sort of Bayesian approach of coming up with the distribution and so on is that you can feed in as much information as you'd like and have about the network that you think is plausible for this particular network. And then you can use sort of a Monte Carlo estimator for a quantity of interest, which sort of shows you what the outcome is. You can obviously also look at quantiles of this distribution and so on. But what the actual worst case is will depend very much on, on the measure of systemic risk and then the actual sort of contagion process that you're considering, yeah. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I'll, I mean, I'm also like to give my audience a chance to ask a question in the seven. So I'll, I'll take one uh, two. So a question asked by Francisca Gottwald, who's an LCNC global politics student. And the question is uh, you were talking about changes in financial regulations in order to make the system more resilient, part of the global financial crisis. And the question is how are these changes institutionalized? Yeah, okay, so I mean, in, I mean, there were many changes, um, essentially, the general idea was banks now are, for example, much better capitalized yeah, um, than they were at the sort of um, start of the financial crisis. Um, there are more uh, constraints in terms of also liquidity that they need to hold. Yeah. And so these are sort of all on a sort of global level. These are sort of now changes uh, on in the regulation how they have to be capitalized, what sort of buffers they need to hold. Also now there are uh, sort of counter cyclical buffers that they need to hold. And sort of the important thing is that if you want financial institutions to hold certain buffers that they can use in an adverse situation, then you need to allow them to use these buffers yeah, in the time of crisis. And some of them have been, these sort of features have been implemented. So, so this is in terms of um, sort of the changes to what the structures of financial institutions is concerned, but then there have been 
been sort of um, significantly different sort of structure changes also to how the market mechanism works. For example, I mentioned um, in the derivatives market that you have to essentially have central counterparties, yeah, and now you have to clear um, um, many derivatives via these central counterparties. So the idea was that you want to get rid of the opaqueness of the derivatives market of the, the global financial market, yeah, uh, crisis. And uh, so if you clear them via central counterparty, you know a bit better what's going on. There's some uh, clear rules in terms of also what collateral you have to provide and so on. And then even for the bilaterally traded uh, derivatives, you have to post collateral and so on. And this is sort of, uh, and these are now rules in how the market mechanism works and they apply depending on sort of what kind of institution you are. You have to comply with these new rules, but also if you, if you trade in certain markets, you have to comply with these rules, no matter if you are a bank or someone else. Yeah, so these rules apply to you. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Rita. Can I, I just I go to another line? And then I'll go. So there's a question here from uh, Stefan Gatzner, alumni from Toronto, Canada. Uh, welcome. Great design with redesigned environments to expand science so all over the world. So Stefan's question is, how are the parameters for extreme outliers slash unknown, unknowns in stress test devised, given the lack of historical data or factor approximation that we've defined that will reflect when? So I think we have an expert. <laughs> <laughs> so the yeah. question is really, how do you, I mean, you said that you cannot just rely on historical data or historical scenarios. So now how can you then Define parameters. Yeah, that, that is a very good question. And I think this is really an area also for a lot of sort of future research, how you design these scenarios. Yeah. Um, so there is no easy answer to that because you're trying to understand um, sort of things that might happen in, in the future. I mean, um, the this is sort of simulation based. You can go and see what happens. One point I want to make in this context was that the regulatory reforms that were put in place in the aftermath of the global financial crisis turned out to be quite valuable now during COVID, even though they were not designed, you know, for COVID. So, so this is, I think, um, a sort of a, a key message here. If you try to think about different types of adverse uh, scenarios, you might be able to be lucky and capture something, you know, uh, that might have a sort of positive implications also for other types of stress events. But ultimately, obviously, um, you need to, to sort of come up with a systematic way to design these different stress scenarios. And this is not a, a straightforward task. I mean, coming up with these scenarios is really a key task and it's not, not a straightforward thing to do, yeah. Thank you. Questions from the audience. The person in blue sweater. Can you say, I mean, all the uh, key, can you say your name and, and affiliation? Hi, Novaris. I'm Carl, a PhD student from the MEFS department. Um, quick question, you talked about these uh, V functions, these loss functions, and you showed different different kind of potential curves. Um, how do we know which curve we are currently in? I mean, I guess it depends on the kind of specific rules which are set by institutions, but I guess these kind of rules can be gamified by banks or by different players in the market. So is there kind of some kind of way to prove that this kind of regulation or mechanism design leads to exactly this outcome as a C curve, or is it more that we hope it does? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, Parts of these uh, function V um, 
or this function V in a way is uh, trying to incorporate uh, bankruptcy law, stylized rules of bankruptcy law. And then you can ask um, some of these parameters, how do you know them? And in particular, once you are in a crisis, how would you estimate them? And this is very difficult. So for example, what I've shown you um, with these bankruptcy costs, or if you think in terms of exogenous recovery rates or so, so they would also vary dramatically depending on, on which time scale you're actually considering this problem. Yeah. So if you are looking at a very short time frame and ask what is the recovery from these assets at this in a, on a very short time frame, it might be almost zero. Yeah. But then on a longer time scale, it might be that the recovery rates are actually much higher. Yeah. So um, so you see this function B is not capturing this as such. I just wanted to show you that in principle you can make different assumptions, and they might depend also, for example, on the time horizon that you consider. Um, so I, I think they are sort of useful tools for simulating, trying to get an understanding of what might happen. Um, but then ultimately, they might be uh, sort of uh, dependent on some parameters that you might not know. Yeah. And the classical problem is this sort of fire sales uh, thing. I mean, how do you know how much the price declines and up to which level and when are market participants coming in buying these uh, assets again and so on. So this is obviously there's a lot of uncertainty uh, in these models. Um, if you want to apply them, not just about the network structure, but also about the contagion process. And um, that's completely right. And one could also sort of try to incorporate this kind of uncertainty as well in the mathematical model. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'd like to go to another online and then maybe have one more thing in the audience. Thank you. So Bart McCarthy from Nottingham asks, uh, what is the equilibrium for what does the Look at the contagion model. And they add, presumably it's an undesirable state. And is it an end state? Um, is it an end state? Yes. Um, okay, that's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, so um, and yeah, this is a good question. I mean, um, so ultimately, you can compute these fixed point and depend on the model and so on, you can might have different equilibria as well. Um, the the fixed point itself is is a sort of an equilibrium. So you could in principle stay in that state. Um, the, the question is, does the default cascade always runs it co its course? Sometimes you might just look at the cascade itself without actually going to the full end where it converges into this equilibrium state. It might be, and this has been observed, that there might already be an interventions going on yeah, while the cascade is running its course, for example, and you might never reach then this equilibrium state that would sort of be the outcome of this um, cascade without intervention. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, sort of from a mathematical point of view, there can be different equilibria. And the question is, you might want to look at this equilibria in terms of a worst case outcome, but it could be that you sort of stop this domino effect earlier because there might be some policy interventions, for example. Yeah. Going on. Okay. Um, keeping an eye on the clock. So I see there's one question from the audience. Thank you. Uh, my name is Roberto. I'm a master's student in the School of Public Policy. And my question is more regarding uh, you are talking like those are markets that are regulated, the ones that you include in the model. But I uh, have the concern about the new markets that are coming up in terms of cryptocurrencies and other uh, more like blockchain uh, technologies, like are like $2 trillion already. 
how can we include that in case that they are not regulated and we don't have absolutely data about uh, previous examples of that? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's a very good question, essentially. Um, and I think this is also um, what regulators are aware of. Um, I think in terms of the studies that have been done on essentially what happened now during COVID, um, there you could sort of see that, for example, the banks, which are now uh, are highly regulated, um, uh, some of these new measures that were put in place after the global financial crisis now really helped the banks to sort of continue to provide, you know, loans to businesses, etc., and uh, to the uh, economy. So this did help, but it's clear that there are many other institutions that are less well regulated. And the question is whether stress testing should be applied to those as well. I guess the answer is, is yes, you somehow need to account for the effects of other financial institutions. And um, and actually one of the, the um, papers I had on the slides, we also looked at non-banks and their role in the provision of liquidity and the demand and supply of liquidity in a crisis. And I think you're completely right. This is, is a very important point. So because systemic risk is obviously not just about banks or so, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody here in the audience uh, for coming here and listening and for the excellent question. Thank you, everybody, who's online. I hope you enjoyed and learned something. Uh, you got maybe inspired to do something in this area. You feel more worried about what's going to happen with the company, less worried about people like Lucas and keeping a finger on the phone. So, yeah, I think we're all a little bit wiser uh, today. I hope you join us again in the future and uh, about mathematics, you regularly organize public events and public lectures like this to follow us on Twitter. If you really want to keep up to date what we are doing, uh, the LSE in general has extensive kind of program for the lectures. So keep an eye on them, follow the LSE on Twitter, follow them on the website, subscribe to their mailings, etc. etc. And we very much hope we'll see you again as soon as we can. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.